0: place to research I think hydration because you get thrown into one of two camps you get thrown into a camp of people that unequivocally believe that dehydration impairs performance in almost every possible setting at every possible level of dehydration however small it is or you get thrown into a camp of people who believe that dehydration has very little effect on performance and that you can just drink to thirst and and that's it
1: Happy New Year everyone, welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Steph Gaskell, I'm an accredited sports dietitian, uh, researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne, and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow sports dietitian researcher, lecturer, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan?
2: I'm good, thanks Steph. Yeah, welcome to uh, 2021 for everyone. Obviously 2020 was a pretty rubbish year, uh, I think 2021 is probably not starting off a lot better, but hopefully things will improve from here with, with vaccines and so on. And obviously looking forward, hopefully for us getting back in the lab, we've sort of got the all clear to start again, albeit with some restrictions. So, yeah, looking forward to getting some participants back into the lab. You know, my study won't be until about May because the, the weather cools has to be quite cool for that study because it's a, uh, a sweat related study. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about um sweat in in an upcoming episode but yeah i'm getting uh people to run for five hours on a treadmill in the heat in a tent um which is not fun yeah yeah it's it's not the the most fun study although they get to watch movies and things so you know we try and keep it interesting (laughs) and and, you know break it up by weighing them and taking blood samples and putting sweat patches on and things like
1: that in the company of yourself
2: yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, yes, we'll, uh, we'll we'll advertise when that's uh, ready to begin recruitment. We've had uh, five brave souls do that study already, um, mm-hmm. and so we're looking for about another six or seven to finish that off, ultra runners. So, yeah, yeah looking yeah. forward to that, and um, obviously you probably have some, some research to kick off in the new year as well, I imagine.
1: Yeah, yep, yep. Hopefully, actually maybe mid-Jan all going well. So, um, yeah, because obviously COVID took away that, that year of um of doing studies so i need us get cracking into finishing off phd studies um so fingers crossed i can recruit 16 participants for that one and yeah we'll, we can talk more about that in a, in another upcoming episode um but yeah just looking forward to getting back into the lab just like you
2: Yeah, for sure. And also seeing athletes, you know, we've got events Mm -hmm. happening again here in Melbourne and, um, yeah, starting to see people coming through that have got competitions coming up for the first time in a really long time, which is is great to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure is, yeah. So here on the Long Munch, uh, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes um, and endurance athletes ask, uh, you know, it might maybe at the – at the coffee table after after a ride or a long run. Um, so yeah, we're here to help answer those questions. and uh, basically how we're laying this out is we're having a a part A and a part B where we have a um, a practitioner or a researcher for the for the part A and then and then we have a athlete um, that you know is um, that topic relates to them um, in Part B uh so alan it's episode 3a today um and we've got a great one to kick things off
2: yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one ever since we started planning the podcast and saying, <laughs> what topics do we want to look at? Who are we going to get involved? Uh, obviously, my area of research is around sort of sodium and hydration. Um, and so, our topic today is around that is, you know, should I drink to a plan when I'm exercising or should I just drink to thirst um, and, and kind of wing it a little bit in that sense? Um, and very controversial area very polarised, as we'll talk about in this discussion. Um, But one person that I've always really enjoyed, he does some really cool research, which, again, we'll talk about, uh, but I think has a a really good balanced view of this and, and hasn't been sort of... Uh, pulled you know into these um, camps in terms of this controversy and this polarized debate about hydration uh, is Dr. Lewis James from Loughborough University in the UK. Um, I've really enjoyed watching a few presentations that he's done, and I think he explains things amazingly well. Really simple, really easy to understand, um, and going to be a fantastic guest. So I've been looking forward to him for for weeks, getting him on the podcast. So uh, super pumped to have him on today.
1: Yeah, perfect. So you can follow us on social media. Uh, the long munch on twitter instagram and facebook Uh, and if you've yeah if you've got any questions or you just want to give us some feedback um yeah feel free to um to add your questions there or comments there and we'll be happy to to answer them
2: Yeah, and the other thing is also with the the podcast itself, Uh, depending on what platform you're listening on, if you wanna like um, or subscribe to the podcast, that obviously helps grow the audience of the podcast, which is fantastic because more people get access to this information. If you wanna leave us a review, we'll obviously be super stoked with that as well. So yeah, really looking forward to engaging with people, both on social media and through the various podcasting platforms to get feedback, what you like about the podcast, what you think? You know, you want to bite off in terms of questions that, that you have, or you have with your your running buddies or your cycling mates that you want answered, and we'll we'll tackle it here.
1: Before we get stuck into um, talking to Lewis, um, as we like to do in in these sessions, we like to get something off our chest. Um, what's on your What's on your radar at the moment? Yeah,
2: well, this has been on my radar for a long time, Steph, <laughs> uh, and I think you are aware yeah. of that. You've probably heard me groan about it a few times. Um, obviously, our topic today is around hydration, and so I think what I need to get off my chest <laughs> is around hydration. So, you know, there's uh, often those topics that you hear conversations, whether it's on social media, whether it's you know, in real life at the coffee shop or whatever. And you know, when we work in the area, you kind of Hear people talk about things, and then you sort of go, Oh, don't get me started, Steph, um, because I probably won't stop. Yep. Um, so, anyway, we're going to get started uh, around this topic of hydration. As I said before, it's a really polarized area. There's people that are sort of saying, you know, drink to thirst, and, uh, you know, everything, everything other than that viewpoint is a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to sell sports drinks, it's a conspiracy, you know, by Gatorade and people that are funded by Gatorade. But then there's other people on the other hand that are very pro, you know, you need to be super hydrated, you need to, you know, replace every drop of sweat that you lose. And if you don't do that, your performance is going to fall off a cliff and you're going to do terrible. Um, And as we're here today and and my own viewpoint, the the truth's always somewhere in the middle, Um, you know. Conspiracy theories by Gatorade. Well, all of this research is in giving water. It's got nothing to do with sports drink. Mm. Um, some of it is funded by Gatorade, obviously, but you know not all of it is, and a lot of it has been just around giving water and it's it's looking at water as a replacement and how much water should you drink. It's got nothing to do with sports drink. Um, you know, there's been guidelines around drinking aggressively that have that have ended horribly for people in terms of you know overhydration, hyponatremia, and deaths. That said. There's been a lot of, um, you know, drinking to thirst that's ended up in mm. overhydration, hyponatremia, or severe dehydration as well. So, you know, I think to say that it's it's one or the other, and you 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 know, you're either in team team hydrate or team thirst, um, and is is frankly a bit of a an oversimplification of of a, of human
1: biology. So, um, so sort of let's. Um it's 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 in the middle there's not and and it's also in context right you know whenever we're talking about a particular topic it's um we need to think about the individual and then the the context yeah for sure for sure
2: so yeah we'll we'll sort of unpack that a lot today and I think yeah, as I said the the reason I'm super excited to get Lewis on is that um He's he's been someone who's been able to sort of tread that path through mm-hmm. the middle of all this mess, uh, and it has been a mess, frankly, on social media and in you know the scientific literature, even, which is is pretty sad, really, um, because you know it should be a an informed uh, d- debate, yep. you know, scientifically around ideas, but it's it's turned into something far uglier than that,
1: sadly. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So let's. Um... This stuff all sounds, sounds pretty amazing, so let's get stuck into it.
2: Yeah, so let's talk to, to Lewis about it. So just to give you a bit of an overview, um, so Dr. Lewis James, he's a senior lecturer and a researcher in sports nutrition at Loughborough University in the UK. Um, Lewis's main interest is around the effect of hydration both on health and performance, but he's done a lot of work particularly on performance. Uh, And he's done, as we'll hear about in the the discussion, some of what I reckon are the best studies uh, and the coolest studies in this field um, that have really ever been done. So I'm super excited to talk to him about some of the practicalities of that rather than just what you can read in a a scientific paper. and And, as I said you know i've I've seen Lewis present a couple of times on this topic, and uh, what really impressed me is is the way he's sort of able to to sit back and observe the controversy um examine sort of the arguments for and against that, and sort of synthesize his own idea, which, as i said is is kind of somewhere in the middle so uh, and v- probably very similar to the own my my own journey that I've been on um as a researcher in you know kind of this field as well, so uh, yeah. Super excited to, to have him on and super excited to, to have a listen to what he's got to say.
1: Excellent. Well, here we go then with episode part 3A of The Long Munch. Let's do it. Hey, Lewis, thank you for joining us um, for this podcast on do I need to plan my fluids for a race or just drink to thirst?
0: Pleasure. Thanks for the invite
1: very welcome very welcome um so with hydration it's often talked about as being pretty important for for our performance particularly in in the heat which is in australia that's what we've got going on right now um
0: yeah we don't have that same problem in the uk
1: <laughs> i was just rubbing it in sorry um, <laughs> so what why why is it why is that the case why is it important
0: yeah. I mean, I kind of joke, in, we don't have that problem in the UK, but of course, when it's colder, people put more clothes on and sometimes that can still lead to the same response. But um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, hydration is going to be important in any athletic scenario where you have elevated sweat rate. So yep. um, that, that could be athletes exercising at a very high intensity for pretty prolonged durations um, or where where you also have heat or perhaps other environmental um, stresses high humidity you know um you know lots of sun radiant heat as well adding to 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 that stress um that will raise sweat rate and if you raise sweat rate um you challenge the body's water stores um and those are you know vital for both health and performance And, and that's really why heat i guess is is uh, is linked to hydration so much in, in, a, in a hot environment at any exercise intensity your uh, sweat rate will be elevated compared to a temperate environment and um, therefore the rate of loss of water is increased and so potentially in in, in some situations at least uh, the rate of water intake might need to increase to, to to try and offset some of that
1: yep yep sure um and so being well hydrated what does um that do to help us i guess in terms of our performance so um yeah
0: yeah for, for, for me um it comes down to mainly maintaining blood volume really and i think mm-hmm. we'll get into this later probably with with some of the the, the more I know we don't want to go too much into mechanisms necessarily, uh, but yeah. some of the reasons why uh, changes in hydration might influence performance. I think most of the effect for me is centered on um, the change in blood volume. If you're dehydrated, your blood volume is decreased mm-hmm. and that can affect your cardiovascular function. Um, it has a whole host of other um, effects as well, but but primarily the reduction in blood blood volume might reduce stroke volume Uh, stroke volume and heart rate feed into cardiac output, uh, which is linked to the delivery of everything the body needs during exercise. Um, And ultimately, if that reduction in blood volume is large enough, um, then you will see an effect on cardiac output and, and, and therefore things that are delivered to places in the body that, that, that need them, whether that's, you know, the working muscles, whether that's organs, whether that's, you know, the brain, w- whatever it is. Um, ultimately, for me, a, a lot of the effects come down to that change in blood volume.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, in this, in this space of, of hydration, uh, we obviously see a lot of controversy um, debated um, between a, a range of scientists. Um, so, you know, there's the talk of, should we be drinking and hydrating according to a plan, uh, or should we be um, going to our thirst? Um, why why is there such controversy?
0: Yeah, you're right. It's 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 such a um it's almost a difficult place to research, I think, hydration because you get thrown into one of two camps. You get thrown into a camp of people that unequivocally believe that dehydration influences or so I should say, dehydration impairs performance in almost every possible setting at every possible level of dehydration, however small it is. Mm-hmm. Um or you get thrown into a camp of people who believe that dehydration has very little effect on performance and that you can just drink to thirst and, and that's it. I think for me, um, since I started doing research really in this space, um, you know, what, eight, eight years ago, something like that, I, f- I found it really difficult to tread a line between those two camps. Um, And I've tried really hard to not pigeonhole myself into one of those positions, because the honest answer from my personal experience as an athlete, um, but also my professional experience as a um, as a as a scientist and a researcher is that the answer isn't that simple. It never is that simple in science. And the truth of the matter is that, as with every scientific answer, it's always it depends. (laughs) And that's really important here because the the situation that you're trying to apply Mm. that science to is is Intrinsically linked to whether hydration is important and whether drinking to thirst or drinking to a plan is 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 the right is the right thing to do. So, I think there's a lot of big personalities in the hydration space, um, and you only have to go and read some of the opinion pieces that are out there or the the comments on uh, papers and the back and forth between different groups. Um, to to understand that people have very, very different views on on this. My personal opinion is that neither of those camps are right. Um, And when I started assessing this, I tried to throw everything out. I tried to throw out my personal um, kind of uh, biases. It's very difficult to do as a scientist. You always have these personal biases Um, uh, and, and start from the beginning. And the thing that I came back to is the science, And this is the thing that I think has been forgotten. And I wrote a a review article that was published in Sports Medicine last year that is really trying to look at the methodological approach that we take to addressing hydration questions. And uh, that, for me, is the most important thing to consider. And I think athletes out there do need to consider this. Um, the, the, The main issues that I see with the literature base that we've got is that many of the studies are not blinded. Mm-hmm. to uh, what the uh, the participant is experiencing and um, that is a big issue in science if we were to do an experiment you know I know alan's done some really nice work on sodium supplementation for example so in, in the studies that we do where we look at sodium supplementation um, what we would look to do is is provide that either in capsules or in flavored drinks so that we can blind the participants to the fact that in one trial they're getting sodium and in another trial they're not getting sodium that's important because that means that their biases, the bias of the athletes that are doing the studies, aren't coming into play when we're looking at their performance. You know, So if everybody thought that sodium supplementation improved uh, endurance performance, for example, and then we gave them salt in one trial and they knew they were getting salt and you know, they, we knew they were getting salt as well. And then another trial, we gave them no salt and they knew they weren't getting salt. If they thought that sodium supplementation improved performance, they might improve their performance just because they knew they were getting the the sodium supplementation Mm -hmm. called a placebo effect or their performance might be impaired in the trial where they don't get the sodium supplementation because they know that they're not getting something that they perceive to be required for performance and that's called a nocebo effect and this is inherent in almost 100 years of scientific research into dehydration and performance. And that was the main point that I kept coming back to was, I think that dehydration does have an effect on performance, but is it really having an effect or is it just that people know that they're dehydrated and therefore mm. they perform worse in these studies? And so that's where we started. And that's my main criticism. And that, I think, accounts for some of the, uh, the, the, the kind of di- controversy di- in the literature. The other thing is that when you look at athletes, well-trained athletes competing in, you know, real world events many of them finish exercise significantly dehydrated as measured by a change in body mass and again this is used as an argument that um, how can dehydration impair performance when you know we have data from say for example Haile Gabri Selassie from the 2009 mm-hmm. Dubai marathon where he finished the race with you know nearly 10% body weight loss most of that would probably be hydra- uh, dehydration. So how can dehydration impair performance if he's 10% dehydrated? Um, but of course, that data is cross sectional. And that's what I would say, just because Haile Gabri Selassie is 10% dehydrated doesn't mean that 10% dehydrated is what you need to do to try and break a world record. Yeah. Okay, you could always scale it back, you could say, well, what if we could make him 8% dehydrated, mm-hmm. you know, he would have more blood volume, he'd be able to thermoregulate more efficiently, you know, he, he perhaps wouldn't have used quite so much carbohydrate. Uh, during the race and maybe there might be some benefits there so um, I think that's the other reason for the controversy that has kind of led to this big argument in the literature and, and personally for me I find it really difficult even publishing a paper you go through the publication process and you know you can have one person that if you've shown that dehydration is impaired performance you have one reviewer that says this is the best research that's ever been done and then you have another reviewer that says this is the most like corrupt research that's
2: ever been done <laughs> yep yeah, it's. I'm so glad you said that, Lewis, and what you just described there is almost exactly how I felt when I moved into sort of sodium and hydration and this area of the literature, and I think in some ways we're probably both lucky to have come in a little bit later than a lot of the established players in that field after the the infighting's begun, because then you can sort of sit yourself down quietly in the middle as an observer, observe all sides and then decide what to do rather than... Have come in, you know, amongst this sort of generation of researchers that have been, you know, team thirst or team planned.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I also one other thing I have to say is that um, some of it has has come around from some of the perceived idea that scientists have been funded by industry and that the idea of you know the scientist is trying to try and increase the industry uh, u- or the use of the industry's product. Um, and you know that has also in some cases been leveled at me so when we published our first blinded dehydration study i had to declare in there that we had received funding from uh, gatorade in the past which which we had um and somebody you know wrote to me and said you know well we can't trust this research because you've had money from gatorade you know so the idea that because in the past i've had funding from gatorade that my research can't be trusted is 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 another thing that is really Mm. used um i did point out to this person that i've had Funding from Gatorade once for one study to test one of their products um, that was a product designed specifically for soccer uh, to use before the match and at half time. And in that study, we showed their product wasn't effective for improving soccer specific <laughs> performance. So if I was going to, you know, if I was going to bias <laughs> a study to try and get funding from industry wouldn't I have done it in the study where they actually funded us to do the project? <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, I, I do find that notion a bit difficult as well because there, there isn't any funding out there for hydration-related no. research other than in industry. And even actually now, and I think partly because of a lot of that, those conversations, for me, uh, the, the, the funding for hydration-related research from industry has, well, <laughs> to, to use a pun, dried up. You know, there isn't funding there. People aren't prepared to do it. And and, and part of that, I think, is because of a lot of this controversy. So we've actually, I think, harmed the uh, ability for us to further our understanding of hydration by creating all this controversy as well. So it's had a negative effect. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, my main goal is to make somebody run faster in the safest way possible um exactly. and uh, and those things don't change whether it's working with industry or whether it's working with elite sport or whether it's working with a charity those are the things that i'm ultimately trying to do in this space
2: yeah yeah no well said and it's something that steph and i've talked about as a future episode actually is looking at that role of uh funding in research and um whether that's through industry or through other means and and what that involves and what it all all actually means. Because I think, yeah, sometimes people uh, sort of have this preconceived idea of what it is, but then the reality is sometimes very different. Yeah, completely. Um, Yeah, so getting back to sort of what you're talking about before, Lewis, with that sort of mechanism of why hydration is important and what it does to us from a performance point of view that's good. Um, as you said, you know, primarily the blood volume is probably the most important factor in terms of um, you know, maintaining performance. Obviously, you know, blood volume has several roles. As you said, it's gonna help transport oxygen and, and nutrients around to our, particularly our muscles, I guess, when we're thinking about a performance point of view, but also to the, the brain as well. Um, but there are other things that happen you know, as we become dehydrated during exercise. So our body temperature tends to be higher than it would be if we were better hydrated. Uh, our heart rate, as you said, you know, because the blood volume goes down, the heart rate tends to be a little bit higher. Um, but it sounds like from from what you're saying, it's probably not necessarily the body temperature difference that's the the performance impairing part, because usually that difference is only you know point two point three degrees or something like that. It's probably more the um, the inability to deliver oxygen and nutrients as efficiently to the muscle? you think that's where the main reason is that hydration imp- influences performance? Yeah, I
0: think at, th- at this stage, we, we don't know precisely what that effect is. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I, th- I think it'd be impossible to say that that difference in temperature isn't playing a small factor, it probably is playing a small factor. But say, for example, we've we've done experiments where we've seen no difference between hydration conditions, or at least no significant difference in in temperature, but we still see effects on performance. Um, And there's other data out there as well, you know, from more temperate environments where temperature and thermoregulation is going to have less of an effect. So yeah, I think probably ultimately, it does come down to potentially delivery of of nutrients. But also, another area is that um, carbohydrate utilisation tends to be higher with um, with dehydration. Um, And in settings where glycogen depletion um might be important for, for performance so we're talking prolonged endurance exercise really here that that may play a play a factor as well mm. um, i think also there are probably perceptual factors um, i personally do believe that thirst probably does play a role so if somebody is thirsty um they're dehydrated and they're thirsty because of course you can be dehydrated and not thirsty as well um, then uh, that that will play a role as well um there so yeah mm.
2: so basically like a feedback yeah, to exactly. the brain exactly yeah yeah for sure and something else i picked up on from what you're saying a bit earlier um about you know that there's that sort of very black and white view of hydration and performance and I guess a lot of the studies uh, that measure this are kind of a, a relatively similar design in terms of the the final part, the performance test part, is is always usually of a you know kind of similar duration, similar intensity kind of exercise. But in the real world, you've got everything from you know your five k to your ultra marathon, huge variety both of duration and exercise intensity. Um, Obviously, we haven't studied all those different permutations and combinations, so it's hard to say. But from your point of view, um, hypothetically, do you think that it's probably the case that you know hydration is more important for certain, from performance point of view, for certain types of exercise or certain types of events, uh, more so than others? Yeah,
0: it's a really difficult question to answer, Alan. I think um, certainly when when you're looking at the types of um, performance that are relevant for athletes in endurance sports, I think probably a wide ranging um, time duration would be influenced by, by hydration potentially, but certainly I would see it more in that, you know, when you're raising exercise intensity um, for prolonged periods of time, you know, whether that's the, the final, like pull up a hill in a, in a tour stage, Or or whether that's you know half marathon or or even a marathon, um, you know where you're really pulling for a pretty long period of time at a high intensity. I think those those spaces are are most likely to be influenced by by um, by by dehydration or or by hydration effects. I think the longer the event goes, the less likely it is probably that that person's significantly dehydrated, and we can talk about that later. because the longer the event goes, the the easier it is probably to replace fluid losses. And so therefore potentially the less likely it is gonna have an effect. I mean, there's very few studies out there that have done really prolonged exercise. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's a study um, from Tim Noakes' lab with Jonathan Douglas as the first author, where they looked at a variety of different drinking rates. But I think they had like five trials and like six subjects. So the ability to see, you know, Dis- discriminate between trials in terms of performance is relatively difficult in that study. But uh, that was something like a two-hour performance test. So going for two hours. It's so 80K, 80K. Yeah, kind I think all right. Think on the it, took about, memory, yeah. it took about two hours for the, the, the guys that yeah, had that's on the right, bike. Yeah. There, um, one study that I saw recently that hasn't been published, but was presented at ECSS from, um, it was from Eric Goulet's lab. Uh, was um was mm-hmm. a really interesting study actually. So it was it was five hours in duration, like cycling. I don't know if you've seen this study, but a cycling a cycling study for yeah. five hours. We've we've got one that's starting here at Loughborough at, at the moment. Slightly different focus than hydration. There'll be some hydration measures but some different foci there. Uh, but this study five hours with ad lib versus prescribed drinking and um some interesting findings. But they did a similar thing. They did the the traditional preload of five hours and then nailed a performance test on the end i think it was something like 20 minutes something like that um in, yeah. in terms of duration so uh, there's you know that most people however long the duration is take this approach of let's look at standardizing the exercise intensity and then looking at that final uh end 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 of exercise kind of performance um so it depends what you're looking at i actually quite like that as a model because you can look at the physiology um, and then you can look at performance and i actually think that it does mirror quite well what athletes do in the real world Um, you know there's this big argument again between uh kind of time to fatigue versus time trial type exercises and it's often argued that time trial is is the best form for real world performance you know i think definitely in some settings a time trial is is a really valid thing but actually when you look at athletes let's take a marathon for example at the start you have a big group of athletes running together and they essentially run at the same pace until somebody can't maintain that pace i.e that person Mm. reaches their time to fatigue and um, there's a really nice study published in uh, Journal of Sports Sciences by Hanley a few years back that documents all of the, uh, the, the pacing for world cross-country championships. And they show pretty much that. Uh, if, if you present the, the data as a percentage of the, uh, the winner's pace, everybody reaches fatigue at a certain point. You know, you see it in, uh, in, in tour cycling, which is the other big endurance event, I guess. You know, mm. the guys go up the hill and yeah. they go up the hill at a pace until someone drops off the back they reach their fatigue they don't stop cycling they go at a lower intensity um, and the interesting thing with that is actually the the winner's uh, performance is actually influenced by somebody else's time to fatigue because often they'll have a teammate who goes to fatigue and then they have to go from there so i think these things do do play a role um, and so they are relevant and that type of um you know study where it looks at you know longer endurance exercise and then a final performance are probably fairly valid actually
2: that study you mentioned before, um, the abstract of that is actually available um, publicly. It's on the, um, the Ultra Sports Science Foundation website because they funded that study. Uh, if anyone's interested, we might might uh, put a link on social media to that one so people can go and have a look because, yeah, you're right, It's I think it's a really interesting study and some, some quite interesting findings from that as well. Um, All right, and before we get into sort of the the main topic of today, that sort of planned drinking versus thirst and and sort of pros and cons of that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the research that you've done, which is some of the coolest research I've got to say in in hydration. Um, Do you want to talk about what what you guys did? I
0: have to, obviously in research, you don't do it alone and um, ideas and people who make you think of things are important. And um, my external examiner was a guy called Neil Walsh. and uh, formerly at Bangor, now at Liverpool, John Moore's. And uh, in my PhD, we'd done some stuff on sodium and performance and um, hydration, some hydration stuff. And and one of the conversations we had was around weaknesses in in um, in, in the hydration literature. And it, it was this blinding question that we we came to. And so it was with Neil that I kind of first had all the conversations around this. So credit to him for making me making me think about that in a in a slightly different way. And um, the discussions we had in my viva were actually specifically about intravenous rehydration and potentially using that Um, obviously then going away and thinking about it that was 2012 going away and thinking about it I thought you know is intravenous the right way to go athletes don't put fluid into their blood well they shouldn't at least Um, and uh, and the, the, the composition of the fluid is very very different so we thought actually the GI tract is quite important and delivering fluids through the GI tract is important so how can we get around this problem so what we came up with was using essentially the method that we use to measure gastric emptying of fluids, um, which is using a small tube that we either put into somebody's mouth or up their nose, and it goes all the way down into their stomach, used in hospitals to feed people. Um, I'd seen Luke Van Loon present some of uh, their overnight protein feeding work that they'd done. And he talked about having these, uh, these old guys sleeping in a bed they're actually asleep and they had the nasogastric tubes in and, and the researchers were sneaking in and uh, putting protein into their stomach at night
1: uh, <laughs>
0: to see whether to answer the question of whether we do digest things whilst we're sleeping so they actually had them sleeping snuck it in and I was like we could do that during exercise to manipulate hydration so that that seeing Luke present that and seeing uh, or speaking to Neil about it made me really think about how we might do it so we came up with this model of of putting uh, fluid into somebody's stomach in a Through a tube that's either up their nose or into their mouth and uh, that allows us to manipulate their hydration without them knowing Um, also the other thing that we do which is really important and is a methodological point here so for anybody who's trying to do this type of work is we have a cover story in place as well so the athletes when they come in to do the exercise they don't actually know that they're taking part in a hydration experiment we tell them that we're giving them drinks that are so different in composition that they would know what the drinks are if we were to feed them. You know, so a lot of them think it's like protein or carbs or even caffeine. Some people say, um, and that's really important because um, there are some symptoms associated with dehydration that we've we've seen present. So uh, it's important that people do that. And with that, with those studies, we essentially showed that um, dehydration of two to three percent does impair cycling performance um and i was quite surprised by that actually because i didn't think we would see a big effect when we first did the study and that's obviously you put your hypothesis in the paper don't you our hypothesis was that there wouldn't be an effect of you know fairly low level of dehydration mainly because of these athletes that are able to um perform well, work, world-class performances with very high levels of dehydration. Also, we'd shown previously that you can almost customize people a little bit to dehydration. And I thought that that was a psychological effect. So therefore, if we removed the placebo, knowing that you were getting you know, fluids um, or adequate fluids that we wouldn't see an effect, but we did. Um, and we've done a subsequent follow-up study that, that, again, showed the same results, actually. So, yeah, I think I'm in a position now where with the research that we've done, we can I can, you know, happily say that uh, dehydration definitely impairs cycling performance in the heat.
1: So I guess our, our question today is, you know, should I be drinking to plan or, or drinking to thirst? Um, what are the different ways someone can go about drinking to thirst? Uh, Sorry, drinking to a plan first, sorry.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, how long is a piece of string really, I guess. Um, The first thing I will say, and uh, I guess this will feed into most of our other discussions, is I don't see those two things as different strategies for me, okay? We have this, like, drink to thirst or drink to a plan surely drinking to thirst is drinking to a plan okay so there there for me there isn't a difference and it's about using the right tool in the right in the right place okay and um and and so drinking to a plan generally most people the way it would be you know perceived anyway would would be um you know trying to uh, replace sweat losses at a certain rate some people might say that you need to replace all of all of people's sweat losses or probably what what is more common nowadays is is recommending that you try and minimize dehydration to less than two percent so if somebody's doing a two-hour event let's say and they're um they're 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 70 kilos okay if they lost 1.4 kilos over that two hours, they would um, th- they would lose 2% of their body weight, and that might be a level that dehydration might start to affect their performance. If for, ease, for ease's sake, if their sweat rate was 1.4 liters per hour, so they would be losing 2% of their body weight per hour. If they replace 1.4 liters over the duration of that two hours, so 0.7 liters per hour, about 50% of what they're losing, um, then they will uh, stay within that two percent boundary, where you might see performance start to to, to decline, um, and uh, that that's probably what most people would perceive as as planned drinking. For me, drinking to thirst is also planned drinking. You know, when I go out for a bike ride on a Sunday and I do three hours, um, you know granted at the moment you don't need that much in terms of fluids but you still lose a you know a fair amount of wakes i normally weigh myself before and after just out of interest um you know i i would only take one bottle with me at the moment you know a liter max and i probably drink sometimes half of that you know so i would plan to drink to thirst during that bike ride Mm -hmm. clearly performance isn't that important to me Mm -hmm. at the moment um but you know it, it i'm making a plan and i'm drinking to that plan for me it's drink to thirst in that in that scenario however if perhaps I'm in a race and performance is really important then maybe if the duration is long enough that it's likely that I'll lose enough sweat to become significantly dehydrated my plan might be to drink at a certain rate over the course of the the event so yeah for me the the line between them is is pretty blurry
2: and i guess like just mathematically the longer the event goes if you're trying to maintain your know, less than two percent the longer the event goes theoretically you know the closer to 100 percent of replacement you need to get to finish the event still within that two percent um so you got to sort of get that closer to yeah. complete replacement Yeah, definitely so
0: i mean i guess there's two things to consider there though the the longer the event goes probably the slower you're going to ex or the the lower the intensity so therefore the the sweat loss is probably reduced as well um uh, the second factor would be that if the sweat loss is reduced um then then the requirement to drink is is less but also because you're exercising at a lower intensity it's probably easier to drink so the example i always give to my students is you know um you're running a marathon world record pace yeah so you're like what 20 21k an hour almost you know i i can't run at 21k an hour i don't think not anymore anyway um i certainly can't pick a bottle up put it in my mouth and drink it and i certainly can't drink it at a rate that is anything anywhere near what is needed to replace the sweat that i would be losing if i was exercising at that intensity however if i if i if i do it at 10k an hour yeah so i'm finishing the marathon in just over four hours then of course my 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 sweat production is a lot lower, but also probably I can drink more, you know, and um, and 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 that there is data out there that shows that as well, you know, as exercise intensity increases, sweat rate increases, but exercise intensity doesn't seem to change that much, um, kind of habitual ad libitum fluid intake during exercise. So therefore, as your exercise duration increases, the gap between sweat rate and fluid intake decreases as well so therefore the the relative loss of fluid per hour probably decreases so yeah i think i think your point's a good one alan you know the longer the exercise potentially the long the more the chance there is that dehydration will become significant but it it also might not play out like that
1: i guess you've just got to think about like i mean in that scenario i'm just thinking of um some some runners that have just recently done a 100k race in Queensland um, and and so they're running you know in I think it was like 35 degree heat for main part of that run where you know even if the intensity of the of their run is lower, some of them are still losing a heck of a lot of um, of fluid um, yeah. so I guess that's a scenario where I don't know bridging that gap just becomes so bloody difficult
0: yeah i think the the ultra ultra endurance exercise is the real kind of difficult one in in striking that balance and um you know you, you you really struggle sometimes to maintain those type of volume intakes you do um whether it's going to be advisable or not is another question and we'll sure we'll get into that later.
1: Mm. Um,
0: but yeah, it's just such a, it's such an extreme, um, example of water turnover, ultra endurance exercise in a hot environment, um, Mm. is, it's almost the perfect storm, isn't it really?
1: It is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. So with, um, drinking to thirst, I guess the question for many people is, and, controversy with that as well is, is how accurate is is drinking to thirst how 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 much can we rely on that I guess
0: yeah um the the, the typical response is that you know thirst lags behind hydration so that you know by the time you're thirsty mm. or you're, you're dehydrated I'm I'm not 100% convinced of that anymore in mm-hmm. our current kind of uh, the world we live in People are so much more aware of thirst and hydration. And, uh, you know, certainly we do a lot of experiments where we dehydrate people and we dehydrate people that aren't necessarily used to being dehydrated to then look at rehydration afterwards. Um, And, you know, so they might do they do 10 minutes exercise, five minutes rest. In a lot of those studies, you'll take people and you'll put them in the chamber, hot environment. You'll do 10, you know, maybe one or two stages. So they've done 30 minutes exposure. They've lost maybe half a percent of their body weight. And they report being really thirsty. So I think that whilst physiological thirst might um, lag behind, probably what people perceive as thirst m- might not. So yeah, the it it typically if you drink to thirst, you drink less than you um, than you need during any uh, bout of exercise, and that's really well documented with athletes. You know, across sports, typically the 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 average response is that people drink less than they lose in sweat, and therefore thirst is is, is behind um, behind f- fluid loss. Um, I don't know whether that's strictly true because sometimes I think the 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 type of sweat rates that we see in athletes in many situations might be difficult to even keep up to. You know, you've got you've got three things to consider, really, haven't you? You've got um, it's like many things. You've got like opportunity motivation Mm. and ability you know we use this everywhere this thing um so motivation would be the thirst uh but is there the opportunity are there the drink stations available have they got the drinks breaks you know what's the volume of fluid that's available at that 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 station you know um have they got the ability have they kind of practiced their hydration strategy to be able to actually drink the amount they need so yeah typically drinking to thirst is is means that somebody becomes dehydrated, but there's loads of nuances to that that makes it complicated
2: yeah i remember i was talking at a conference last year um, around hyponatremia which is you know usually speaking over hydration and i think one of the great ironies is if you go back and there's uh, like a position statement around hyponatremia um, published in the academic literature and it, it talks about you know drinking to thirst as being sort of one of the core pillars of preventing hyponatremia and it's in this little diagram as you know one of these components in this model and then you flip back to the page before, and it's a table of about half a dozen cases of people who got hyponatremia from drinking to thirst. Yeah. And you're like, well, hang on, isn't that a complete contradiction of what you've just said in your yeah. um, in your statement, and I think, you know, as you said, for the for the majority of people, that will be true that they will, you know, drink less than, um, you know, complete fluid replacement. But there's obviously been, you know, documented cases where people have "quote unquote" drank to thirst and actually ended up overhydrated and in trouble because of that.
0: Exactly, and I think, um, you know, for, for me, then it comes down to what is the safest way to hydrate for the individual, and the only way to guarantee that both ends of those spectrums aren't um, happening. So significant dehydration. Um, And I actually think that significant dehydration, we've got this cutoff of 2% that's always bounded about. I think it's different for every single person you know every time we do a study if we put people at 2% we see huge variation in how that impairs people's performance some people you know doesn't have any effect or slight improvement in performance even some people it's you know 20 25 30% impairment in their performance huge effects. so clearly the tolerability of dehydration is different in different individuals and for me then that brings you back to that threshold that might work on an average but for 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 each individual probably there's a slight different threshold for them i haven't worked out a way of being able to easily test this hence why i've not done the study but i think you would find that some you know well-trained athletes would have a lot higher tolerance than you know two percent for example um but yeah you're sorry your original question Alex, <laughs> the uh or your original point those two those two extremes the only way to prevent over hydration and significant underhydration is to actually plan how much you're going to drink and plan not to drink too much and plan not to drink too little if it's at all possible. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And the other thing that I think about with um, drinking, you know, drinking to thirst is um, for ultra runners again, uh, just because I work a lot with with ultra runners, um, is like that message sometimes um, gets across to them and they they are just thinking about that and then they're not factoring in you know the carbohydrate intake so that's and then i you know the area i work a lot in is in gastrointestinal um concerns issues uh and then that's you know when when um gut disturbance can occur for them so um that's where i kind of like that approach of yeah, using a bit of both like um having a bit of a plan, having a bit of an idea where perhaps that range is for someone um in fluid loss in different conditions. Um and then and then needing to factor in, okay, well, you know, this is the amount of carbs I may be going for per hour or what have you. Um yeah, just you know, that that I think drinking drinking to thirst, but we need a just think about well what's the sport I'm doing and what are the other things that I need to consider
0: yeah completely and I mean I guess if you get all of your carbs from from drinks yeah then you know your your drink volume is important as part of your you know fueling strategy isn't it um I mean I, I think if if I've got somebody running you know and I don't I don't advise any kind of ultra endurance uh you know runners at least um but I, I would not put in running, you know, if it's up to marathon, I, I wouldn't put the, uh, the onus on getting your carbs from drinks. No. Cause I think if you do that, you're going to fall short, you know, um, most in most running studies there's a really nice review paper by, um, Sam Chevron from a long time ago, 2001, I think it was, um, Chevron and Haynes, um, in, I think it's sports medicine. And in that paper, Sam takes all of the data from, um, all of the kind of running studies that are out there and contrast sweat rate and fluid intake and in in that paper you can see that the average fluid intakes across like 20 odd different events you know groups of people the average fluid intakes are always like in running events somewhere between like two and six hundred milliliters per hours mm-hmm. per hour however fast the people have gone mm-hmm. you know and getting much higher than that is really difficult in running mm-hmm. so if you take a you know. I mean, even let's go back to that data on, on um, Gabriel Selassie from 2009. So I think his fluid ingestion rate was about 800 milliliters an hour. It's about what he consumed in that in that marathon that took him two hours, five minutes to do. So yep. um, it, it's not that much. If he was going to provide all his carbohydrate from that 0. 0.8 liters, he mm. wouldn't get 60 grams an hour. Mm. You know, he wouldn't be close to that. And probably he's trying to push more. So that's with somebody who's relatively well-trained and drinking quite a lot actually if you're having 500 milliliters of sports drink if that sports drink is only six percent you know you're you're not getting enough carbs yeah so yeah you have to set for me you have to separate out those two those two things the the carbohydrate intake and the fluid intake and you almost have to have them separate for the athlete but your point is a really interesting one steph is how does changes in hydration or how how do changes in hydration influence other relevant functional Mm. effects Mm. things like does the dehydration influence gastric emptying that might then have a knock-on effect on GI responses Mm. um you know one of the things we're looking at is is kidney function as well and um you know whether there's an effect there um but yeah i think there's some really interesting stuff there with the GI uh, permeability and i know you know you guys are probably leading the world i think in that space so i'm not going to start talking about that (laughs) (laughs) do a podcast with yourselves
2: (laughs) Yeah. Cool. (laughs) <laughs> um, so in terms of, um, you know, whether you go down that kind of planned approach or that more drink-to-thirst approach, and as you said, that that can form part of a plan as well, do you think, you know, the goals that an athlete has, you know, obviously some people are out there to, you know, chase personal bests or win events and, and you know, really the competitive end of things, whereas other people are doing things for charity or just doing it for the enjoyment, do you think that kind of would influence, you know, maybe which way you would go with that in terms of, you know, whether you need to sweat test someone work out to the nth degree this is you know roughly what my sweat rate's going to be and and plan around that versus just going let's just go out there and drink however much or as little as i feel like on the day
0: yeah i think i think for me i would look at it as um, two different ends of the spectrum so first of all i think that planning to not drink too much is something that everybody should and could do quite easily So if you're trying to, if you're a charity runner and you know you're gonna go around the marathon in five hours um, with the type of availability of fluids that are there, then maybe you need to know roughly how much you're going to lose so that you can ensure that you don't drink too much. And that's the most important thing for that person. I think the any drink that they have is probably going to replace a lot of what they're gonna lose, Um, depending on the environment. You know, it does depend on the environment. but I think that would be my main focus there on the other end of the spectrum, if you're going, you know, full gas, you know, for a decent, you know, let's, let's say you're going sub three hours for a marathon. So, you know, you're a, you're a recreational runner, but you're, you're trying to perform. Then I think in that, that situation, it's it's unlikely that you're going to over drink too much. Um, so you, you're more trying to keep the dehydration down a little bit. You're more likely to experience dehydration that is probably not going to affect your health actually, but, but might influence your um, performance. And so, if you're if you're at that end, your your drinking focus is more to try and mitigate negative effects on performance. At the other end, your 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 drinking strategy is to prevent you from overhydrating. And I think that's the message that we need to get across to athletes. Um, but I, I, I see no reason why most people couldn't work out their sweat rate relatively easily. Uh, you know, all you need is a set of bathroom scales. You know through it was one of the things I did during lockdown to maintain my kind of (laughs) lack of you know prevent boredom was like you know I was doing a lot of running and a lot of cycling and I was like you know recording like sweat losses each session you know how seeing how it changed in different um, environments with different intensities different modes of exercise it's so easy to do weigh yourself before and after if you've drunk something weigh the drink that you've drunk work out how much your total sweat loss is for that and then you know divide it by the duration of the exercises it's so simple
2: are you seeing a lot of variation depending on you know harder days easier days running cycling cooler weather warmer weather like is are you looking at a two or three fold difference or only you know 10 or 20 percent either way
0: Running to cycling for me is where the big difference happens. So if if I'm you know if I do the same duration run versus a cycle, I'll lose a lot more sweat in my run. You know, and, and um, keeping the, the the perceived intensity about the same in the two sessions. You know, and. Uh, that's fairly consistent, I think you see higher sweat rates in running than you do in cycling, you know, mm. more metabolic heat produced. So it's, it's no surprise. Um, you have got less convective cooling as well, which you get on the bike, every hill you go down, you're not producing any power, but you're getting a cooling effect. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's yeah, the big, that's the big difference that I found day to day, not that much difference, actually, in terms of sweat rate, you're probably talking 20, 20 to 30% max, um, for, for me of course the um the interesting thing happens and this perhaps doesn't happen for you guys so much your temperatures are relatively consistent on a day-to-day
2: is that fair in not Australia? in melbourne no, no. <laughs> okay. this week we've gone from 15 degrees to 30
1: yeah in certain states it is but in melbourne we have five seasons in okay so
0: similar to us then you know so it could be it could be (laughs) six degrees one one day you go out training and the you know uh, literally like seven days later it could be 30 you know you have swings of that sort of like change so you could have spent a whole Mm. like training block training at a certain temperature and then race time comes this actually Mm. happened to me like my wife i'm not a Ultra endurance athlete, but my wife pulled me into doing an Ironman distance triathlon, and so we've done a we done a little bit nice. of training, not that much, not as much as I'd have liked to have done, um, and uh, and you know in the UK typically fifteen to twenty in the summer. The the triathlon was I think it was July, so we've been training a little bit through the summer, you know, so fifteen to twenty max. We turn up for the triathlon, and it thirty four degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so then you get that big change in what you need to do from a drinking strategy Mm. point of view so yeah it's it's, Mm. you can you can get those swings so that's the difficult thing is is knowing the environment that you're going to be exercising in and trying to replicate that and have an understanding of your sweat rate there
2: yeah and so important obviously to then you know not just do a sweat test once and go you know this is my number you know 600 mils or 800 mils an hour or whatever it is you know you can come up with that number but i think people sometimes go down the wrong Path of just doing a one off test and going, that's my number. It's going to be the same every time I go out and exercise. Whereas yeah. you said, you know, you're going to get big variation. And even within something like an Ironman, like I remember there used to be an Ironman here in Melbourne and you know, at the start it would only be you know seven o'clock in the morning it might be 10 or 12 degrees and yeah. then by yeah, you know really two o'clock true. in the afternoon it could be 25 degrees yeah. and so even the sweat rate during the duration of the same event on the one day could vary from the start to the finish of the event so Absolutely. i mean i think from that perspective i'm interested in your thoughts on this is you know given that there can be that kind of variation even within an event for the ultra distance stuff is at some stage you you have to think well how am I actually going to know whether my, you know, I'm drinking to you know, whatever sort of range I'm aiming for? How do I know if that's right? If I'm actually being slowly, progressively drinking too much over the hours of exercise, or I'm not drinking enough and, and slowly falling behind? How are you going to, you know, you're not going to stop and weigh yourself, obviously. No. So how do you know? It's
0: impossible, I think it's, it's genuinely impossible. So you have, to, you have to make your best guess of like a range that is going to give you that, you know, mm. you're definitely not going to drink too much, but you're not going to drink so little that you really start to struggle. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess if you, if you really have drunk too little, you'll start to feel some of those symptoms, you know, mm. the, particularly the thirst is, is going to be one, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, thirst, I guess this is the only dipstick you've got mm. really, isn't it? It
0: is, it, it is at that point. Um, I guess you have got dipsticks in the other direction in terms of, you know, if you're going to the, if you're needing to go to the toilet a lot, mm. then probably you're drinking too much. But of course there, there is, you know, potential issues with some of the system that regulates urine output that means that that might not happen with some some athletes in some situations so you haven't always got that dipstick yeah
1: that's the that's actually one of the questions i was going to ask you because it's a, a common question that i get from um from runners is uh again in in ultras should they be needing to pee in These ultra distance, and so probably more so talking and referring to, you know, like more like your 100k, your 160k races. Um, Should they be needing to pee during these races? Yeah,
0: I'd be surprised if they didn't. But Mm. also, you've got a number of factors that occur that mean that you might Mm. not. So, for example, when you're exercising, blood flow to the kidney is reduced. So just because blood yep. flow to the kidney is reduced, that will reduce urine volume on its own. You also sometimes get um, antidiuretic hormone secretion that is nothing to do with the uh, concentration of the blood, and uh, that can also prevent urine output. Um, so it it will really depend on the individual. Um, probably most might need to. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you if you do need to pee because um, it means that your kidneys are functioning well yeah you know, so yeah when you when you look at like classifications of like you know kidney kidney damage m- most people that finish exercise would be classified as having some kidney damage if you use mm-hmm. the clinical mm-hmm. diagnostic tools i don't think those are fit for purpose with exercise um necessarily but yeah there there is this reduction in in, in blood flow that means that sometimes you won't need to pee So yeah yeah, yeah.
2: All right, well let's let's sort of pull this all together now and I think um I'll sort of give I guess my take on it and Lewis you can sort of add to it, mould it, disagree with it however you like. I guess the, the way I would tend to approach this in terms of you know drink to a plan or drink to thirst is as you said there's so many different factors here. There's you know sweat rates will be different from day to day. There's the fact that you know different events you'll have different opportunities to drink, different availability of fluids. Uh, All this kind of stuff sort of has to be taken into account. So I guess that the best we can do is sort of do those kind of sweat testing in in the range of conditions that you might reasonably expect, you know, the hotter, the the cooler, the higher pace, the lower pace, and get an idea of, I guess, what the upper and the lower likely sort of sweat rates are going to be. Um, Make a plan sort of based on that. Um, and obviously based on you know, the availability of fluid along the way. So it's the practical aspect of you know just saying 600 mils an hour of fluid. Well, if you get out there onto the course and you get an hour in and there's not 600 mils of fluid available to you, you, kind of, you can't do that anyway. So that you've got to take obviously that into account as well. Um, but having that kind of range that you're working within you know maybe starting in that kind of the middle of the range, um, but understanding that there's things to look out for, whether it's thirst, whether it's excessive peeing, that you might use those as um, as feedback I guess to you know adjust things on the fly as you go, particularly for those longer events where uh, you know the potential to to go either way too low or, or overhydrate is is going to be greater just because of the the amount of time you're out there. Is that sort of how you would tend to approach it, or is there anything else you'd do sort of differently to that?
0: I think so. I think, um, you know, uh, as with anything, you know, you need to have a plan. That plan could be to drink to thirst. It could be a half marathon, for example. You've got somebody doing, you know, don't worry about the volume of fluid you need to consume. Just drink when you're thirsty. That's absolutely fine. Um, But yeah, you know, it's that old saying, isn't it? Uh, If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Um, and I think you know whatever the event is, you need to have a plan. And I think it's easy enough for athletes to to, to gauge their own sweat rate, to have an understanding of roughly how much they're losing, and therefore roughly what they're going to you know be needing to consume. The difficult thing is actually doing it. So then that's planning for the opportunities. You know, can they drink at that exercise intensity? Is there the availability of of fluid? Um, and those are normally the things that with well-trained athletes doing competitive events, they will struggle with, um, you know, how many drink stations are there? They don't occur that often. And how much can you actually drink when you pick up a drink from a drink station? You know, those are the really practical things that athletes need to, need to work on, you know, you know, if you're a triathlete, we haven't talked much about triathlon, but if you're doing like an Olympic distance triathlon triathlon, you You know, if you're, if you're competitive, you're not going to be picking drinks up. So you've only got the drinks that are on your bike. You know, we had a big conversation with, with the the team at British, British triathlon about their strategy going into Tokyo when it was going to be 2020 and, um, and, and and that sort of, sort of stuff. How do they do that? You know, but when you do that, you load the drinks onto the bike, you know, well in advance of the race. So the temperature of the drinks is pretty much at the temperature of the environment. so if you'd planned to drink cool drinks, you know, and you've had somebody handing those to you during training, then you go out to Tokyo and you've got a drink that's at 32 degrees. You know, you need to practice your drinking strategy with that specific environment in mind. So, yeah.
1: I I listened to a presentation Alan um, sent me that you did. I remember you, I think, um, maybe I misinterpreted, but um, I thought you were saying that uh, there's athletes that – so they can train you can train to get over the the um, impairment of dehydration
0: yeah in a way so yeah my belief and it is a belief Mm. so I have to say that from the start probably is I think that there is some ability to change your level of tolerance to dehydration yeah Um, and I've seen it in a number of settings my kind of when I was an athlete I was a weight weight category sports combat That's, sport athlete yeah so we used to have to make weight a lot and mm. you see it with everybody that starts to make weight they, they they use dehydration as that tactic and i did this before i was even a scientist or even studying kind of sport related stuff or nutrition um and you know the first time anyone does it it's really horrible you know you spend a long time in a sauna you maybe lose three four five percent of your body weight You know, by the time you've done it ten times it's an awful lot easier mm. you know two percent body weight That didn't even touch the sides as it was you know so it was it was very very clear to see that that tolerance did build up in a lot of people and for me I think you look at endurance athletes and it's very similar you know Mm. I do a lot more endurance uh, sport than I do combat sport now Uh, but you know I go for a a run at the weekend and I do you know 13-14 miles and I don't take any drink with me you know i'm only running at eight minute miles that sort of speed so not fast but you know i'll lose three three and a half four percent of my body weight in the summer in the uk um in that run and i won't take any fluid with me and at the end i'm not too thirsty actually so i think endurance athletes like i said are strange individuals anyway but they through their training repeatedly expose themselves to these type of stresses and i think that it 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 probably is, is highly likely that some sort of tolerance is built up. The question that I am keen to answer, and we've only done, we've published one study and we've got another study that's part way completed that has done this. In in one study, we showed that you could build up that tolerance to a dehydration stimulus. Uh, that has big implications actually for the dehydration literature in my view, because they never familiarize people with these uncomfortable stimuli. Uh, but that's another, another factor. Um, Within four or five exposures, people's dehydrated performance improved by 5%. Wow. And it was no longer statistically significantly different from you hydrated performance. It was still different, I would say. The p-value was very close and we only had 10 people. It was more of a pilot study, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But that shows some evidence that you can build up this tolerance. And for me, well-trained endurance athletes are doing this all the time. You know all the time they're constantly dehydrating and rehydrating so it 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 probably is um you know it's it's highly likely that they are
1: it's interesting yeah because i mean runners have been saying it for a long time particularly the old school runners like i just yeah they would they'd often say that to me and um yeah i didn't I didn't always believe them but yeah. um yeah I, mean, I don't
0: know like if you do weigh yourself but next time you go for a long run, weigh yourself before and after and for me and i mean i'm I'm not a small guy you know i'm i'm ninety ninety kilos you know and I'm still losing three to four percent of my body weight
1: yeah
0: in like a yeah. you know, hour and a half two hour run so
1: yeah yeah, a majority of ultra runners phew, would be huge just because even logistics like they're out in the trails like they they're not going to get that fluid Um, same thing when you go out on a bike
0: you know you go out on a bike and you might go for three or four three or four hours but all you take is one or two bottles with you because that's all you can fit on your bike you know probably the hottest day in the year maybe we might stop somewhere and fill up the bottles but normally you know you're doing that that three that three hours with without you know fully replacing your fluid so cyclists Mm. less so than runners i think but um you know they are still familiarize themselves to this kind of dehydration so i think that's a really for me it's a huge factor something i'm massively Mm. interested in i want to try and unpick if there is really something there and what what it is that is changing you know was it there already is this Mm. something that predisposes somebody to being good at endurance running you know being able to tolerate this makes them a good runner or through Mm. becoming a good runner do they become tolerant of of Mm. dehydration you know is it a chicken and the egg situation
2: yeah 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 sure all right um so just to to wrap up uh, i mean i guess it's a a a big question so we'll, we'll keep it short but what are the sort of the key areas that you feel that we still don't really understand scientifically about hydration and performance
0: Okay, if we stick just to performance, so the, the big one for me is, um, and I put it almost at the end of all my presentations nowadays, is we've got evidence from three studies now that, for me, really strongly support the idea that dehydration of greater than 2% body weight impairs performance, okay? Okay. I almost wanted to throw away a lot of the other literature when I started, because I was kind of like, they're not blinded, we can't fully, you know, trust them. One of our studies has shown that perhaps if you've got 3% dehydration, that that probably does impair performance, um, even if they're unblinded. Okay, so my issue is that those three studies are all in cycling, they're all in the heat, Mm. and they're all in males. So the evidence from all other studies is still reliant on on unblinded work where we could have placebo and nocebo effects. And if you think about running, for example, in in cycling, um, you know, particularly cycling on a bike in the lab, the the, the body mass isn't that important. So the loss in body mass that you get from dehydration isn't going to be in any way, ergogenic unless you start cycling up a hill. Um, If we look at the stuff in running, When you're running, you are carrying your own body mass. So theoretically, a reduction in body mass might be, you know, um, might be ergogenic. Um, We don't have the answer to that. But I think what we need is blinded studies in these other modes of exercise, whether it's running, whether it's intermittent. We need to look at females as we do in every single area of Mm. sports science and sports nutrition. You know, there's very little research that's specifically on females. So understanding whether the response for females to changes in hydration is different um, is is the other area that I think. So we need to start to get solid evidence for different modes of exercise that dehydration impairs performance, first of all. That's the base of Trying to understand hydration for me. If dehydration doesn't impair performance, then is there any value in looking at different drinking strategies? You just say, "Well, do what you want." You know, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's for me where we're at at the moment. Um, and then the other big question I think is looking at this—you know, this ability to tolerate dehydration. Why is that there? How has it got there? I think those two questions probably will keep me busy for the next fifteen or twenty years in my hydration research. So. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know. The, sorry, thing.
0: the third question. The third, the third question. I think really we don't know enough about is how does changes in hydration during training influence responses to that training, adaptation, performance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, there's three, three questions that I think are left um, that I'm really yeah. keen to un- unpick.
2: Yeah. Okay. And is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you want to put out a call for volunteers? If there's anyone in the UK listening <laughs> to this. We're
0: always after volunteers, so if anybody—cyclists, runners, um, triathletes—you know any endurance athletes—we're we're keen to hear from you if you want to take part in studies, volunteer for studies. Um, we always have stuff going on, looking for for athletes. So yeah, we've got studies ongoing at the moment, looking at various hydration manipulations, um, various different carbohydrate supplementation uh, studies. Um, so yeah, please do get in touch if you're if you're in and around the Loughborough area. Um, then, yeah, we're, we're always looking for people. And obviously you can get data back from us about, you know, your yeah. your nutrition strategies, you know, physiological responses, stuff like sweat rate, the things we've talked about, sweat composition, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah,
2: so, awesome. And we'll, yeah. we'll put some links on social media so people can get in touch with you if they're, if they're interested in volunteering for that kind of stuff.
1: Cool. you want me to do the bonus round?
2: I do, yes. All right. I think we kind of flip things around.
1: Yeah, that's all, right. that's all right. Um. So, do you? It sounds like it. Um, do you participate in any sports yourself? It sounds like you, you do a few. I do
0: more exercise than sports now. So, yeah, I've got mm-hmm. I've got three kids under six. So most of my exercise is you know intermittent kid chasing. Um, yeah, you know, and, and keeping up with them now. They're starting to get on bikes and stuff. So uh, yeah, in terms of exercise, cycling and running are the two ones I do at the moment. Um, my competitive combat sports days are probably behind me um, but I do hit the punch bag regularly um, as well so yeah th- those are the, the main three
2: cool. which um, I' so sports? I
0: started with taekwondo um, and then transitioned to mixed martial arts um, and competed in competed in both of those yeah, cool. I've done I've competed in various um, iterations of grappling as well whether it's been judo or wrestling submission wrestling um, that sort of thing as well so yeah, right just to be honest is where um, a lot of my interest in hydrations come from from weight cutting yeah. so it's just applying yeah. it to somewhere else right. so yeah yep
1: favorite i guess post run post exercise hydration beverage and why
0: <laughs> if anybody says anything other than beer you know
1: yeah you know, i that's know that's just
2: the wrong <laughs> it's just the wrong answer isn't it you know so, exactly yeah for me and you're not going down the scientific electrolyte formulated no, beer no, or just I would never ooh, ruin
0: beer. my beer with electrolytes. No, you know?
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any particular type of beer are you a dark beer man yeah, or
0: ale ale for me proper english yep. proper english ale so yeah no no lager um, that's a that's a, for me that's a sports beer a lager potentially you know you, you could probably have that during exercise right I've always thought this you know we talked about hyponatremia earlier and um for me this is why uh, beer is a magic drink because the um the ethanol that's in the drink obviously stays in the blood which raises blood osmolality so whilst you get a drop in serum sodium uh, or blood sodium from from drinking beer you know because people drink pints and pints of beer with very little um you know uh, hypernatremia or at least sim- symptomatic hyponatremia. Um, so the, uh, the ethanol, I think, uh, stays in the blood and raises the osmolality and protects you from hyponatremia or the effects of hyponatremia. <laughs> I remember reading my nutrition textbook and I think they, they put a report in there of somebody with a, a sodium, blood sodium concentration of like 110 millimoles per liter, you know, so like through the floor, but he was yeah. so intoxicated that he hadn't even like passed out, you know, and he, and he, and he survived and, and was absolutely oh fine. So gosh. yeah, the magic of beer, right? Eh?
2: Fantastic. Yeah. So you should have these at aid stations or the medical
1: tents. <laughs> there you go. They they have some marathons. Fantastic. I think in in well, no, it's not beer, it's but it's wine. Um, you know the Paris Marathon. They've um, they've got the wine and the cheese at aid stations. So. <laughs> that's brilliant
0: we have we have in the uk on some of the the vineyards obviously the vineyards are relatively low standard in the uk but they do do runs at some of the vineyards so you'll have a 10k run at the vineyard and the stations are you know it's designed to let you taste the wine you run Mm -hmm. around and drink a glass of wine so yeah
1: have you done the beer mile the beer miles are famous over here
0: (laughs) yeah i think um there's there's a few people at luffer that have done it and done quite well in it i think Um, but I have never, I have never done it Four pints in that, that type of time. No, thanks. I think the record is less than five minutes, isn't it? Somebody's done a sub five minute mile whilst having four cans of beer at the same time.
1: (gasps) Um, if you could do anything other than what you're currently doing, um, in terms of your career, what would it be?
0: Wow. That's a difficult question. Mm. I mean, I think this is definitely the right career for me. You know, I love every aspect of mm-hmm. my job and I wouldn't probably I wouldn't want to do another career. But I think if I could, as I've got older, I've really got into like gardening and like landscape gardening in my own house. So I yeah. think I'd I'd go down the route of uh, being a gardener, probably landscape gardening, you know, out, outside. I, I could only do that in the summer though because obviously in the uk the weather in the winter is <laughs> prohibitive from being outside um, so probably i would be a landscape gardener 50 percent of the time and then i'd be a ski instructor the other 50 percent of the time or you know work in a ski resort somewhere or perhaps not work perhaps
2: <laughs> and you have to see if you have to see if four seasons landscaping is registered in the uk <laughs> as a business there you name go. Right. <laughs> get onto it
1: <laughs> Um, one thing on the bucket list that you haven't done yet.
0: Uh, the, uh, the, so the, the, the triathlon that my wife, uh, Oh yeah. Nabbed me into doing, um, she beat me in it. So <sighs> one of my bucket list items is to go back and redo that iron distance triathlon and, uh, and, and beat her time. So at least I'm the best, uh, athlete in the house. <laughs> the moment i've got second place for that and you know there's three kids that are fast catching me up so yeah
1: (laughs) that's awesome and um your most prized possession and why
0: wow that's a difficult question i don't know if i have any prized possessions
1: apart from your kids and your wife
0: yeah i wouldn't call them possessions i think you know that would (laughs) be (laughs) it's probably a fine line between being a good dad and uh you know a few other things that that if i if i saw things that way most prized possession i genuinely don't think i have one no no maybe um maybe some of my medals from my taekwondo days maybe because i medaled at um kind of international competitions so although i I say they're prized somewhere in the loft in a box so yeah it's always a a way somewhere yeah maybe if i was you know really pushed to say something probably probably that i think i think probably you know if you can class it as Mm -hmm. possessions then yeah family and friends are the the main thing the most important things aren't they so yeah yeah
2: absolutely Awesome. All right, well, that draws us to a close. Thank you so much for your time, Lewis. It's been fantastic to have a chat with you. Uh, I think Steph and I are really really looking forward to this one um, and, and getting your thoughts on on what is, you know, as you said, a very controversial topic. And, and as I think we've opened up the, the can of worms today, it's, it's not as simple as being in Camp A or Camp B. Um, and I think a few of us are, are nicely placed somewhere in the middle um, and we feel much more comfortable about that
0: yeah i think so i hope so i think we can uh the the main thing the main message i'd like to get across for hydration is that let's try and stop the controversy let's all come together and, and talk about really trying to solve the problem and um let's not just hang on to to old beliefs and i've had i've had really good conversations with lots of people from the various different camps you know and I've, i think like you say alan we're quite unfortunate we've come to it a little bit later um and uh and can can walk in the middle perhaps mm. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Lewis. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Great to talk.
2: Dr. Lewis James. Wow. Fantastic interview. Such a great researcher and such a great bloke to chat to, Steph. Uh, Had a great time with that. And obviously the listeners won't hear it, but after we stopped recording, we had about a 45 minute (laughs) chat with Lewis afterwards about every topic under the sun. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Really was really looking forward to that. And and I think it really delivered as well.
1: Sure did. And he he's just so great at explaining things as well, and um, and you know, making it practical too.
2: Yeah, cool. So I think you know, coming back and answering that question: should I drink to a plan or should I drink to thirst? I think what we've seen here is it's probably not as as simple as that. Like pretty much everything in nutrition, and and every question that we've asked so far on the podcast, it's it's never that that simple. Um, but I think the thing here is that. You know drinking to a rigid plan and saying my fluid intake number should be this and i'm going to drink this mm. come hell or high water is probably fraught with danger mm-hmm. at the same time just going in and going i just drink to thirst that's what i do and not having any ideas or plans around that about logistically how you're going to access fluid how much you may want to access because if you're thirsty and there's not enough fluid available to you well you can't drink to thirst anyway um so you still need to to have a th- have a think about these sort of things. And I think there's still a role there for um, sweat rate testing, trying to work out how much fluid you do lose an hour. Um, but but bearing in mind that it's going to fluctuate day to day, it's going to fluctuate depending on your pace, the weather, um, whether you're cycling or running, like in triathlon, for example, the, the two sweat rates will probably be different potentially. Um, and so having a, a range rather than a, a fixed value that you're going to you know follow um, religiously, I think is is really important,
1: yeah, and I think you know we we both do that with our athletes where you know we we give them something like an Excel format, and you know we 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 go, you know let's put in the session, let's put in the environmental conditions, you know intensity go to your heart's content in terms of the detail. Um, and then, you know, that that's where we can have a look at fluid and, and it might be carbs, etc. other things there too. Um, and, yeah, starts are just paint a picture um, so we're not going in kind of blindsided um, into the events. And, you know, as we spoke about um, in this session as well, like particularly in the ultra-endurance events where environmental conditions can just fluctuate or, you know, drinking the thirst you know, when it's thirty, thirty-five degrees. Um or or yeah, those things don't always um work if we just have this one um frame of mind, I guess. So um yeah, I think um Lewis explained that really well. Um and um yeah I think uh for for the listeners out there, hopefully they Uh, can take something out of the the session today and um, start start having a look at what their sweat rate is in, in different conditions and what's relevant to them depending on the event
2: yeah yeah absolutely and i think we'll put on social media maybe some you know a quick little graphic about how to calculate your sweat loss um you know lewis kind of described it there but i think sometimes having that visual of uh, how to do that calculation and some of the things you need to take into account is really important so we'll pop something up on social media so people can have a look at that and um, use that to sort of guide how you go through that process of working out your sweat rate as accurately as as you possibly can cool all right well that's all we have time for today in episode 3a of the long munch episode 3b is coming up next steph and we are going to talk to someone that you've worked with around hydration and specifically one of those i guess outlier events which is something a bit more extreme in terms of um, fluid requirements compared to the usual do you want to tell us who we've got and uh, and what what the circumstances were? Yeah,
1: yeah. So we're um, lucky enough to have um, Julian Spence. Uh, so yeah, Julian's a um, a high level marathon runner who um, yeah qualified for Doha Marathon champs, and pretty sure he was the only Australian that um, that ended up racing uh, the the marathon over there. Uh, so I was lucky enough to, to get to do some work with him in preparation for that and, you know, collaborated with you as well um, on preparation. Um, so we thought none better than get him to to have a chat, to, to have a look at what, what we did there um, and Doha being a, a great example of an extreme environment being, you know, um, hot and humid.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and in such contrast to you know your standard big city marathon, mm. which usually tends to be run at a time of the year where conditions are really favourable for running, you know maybe ten to twenty degrees Celsius, yep. and then going to somewhere where you know like Olympics and World Champs, often you don't have that control over what the climate is going to be in the same way that you do with your your standard races, and so. You know for the marathon runners, it's one thing to run in the heat, but for them, it's just so different to what they're used to most of the time in competition. yeah,
1: yep, and then the other element um was you know running at night as well, which again isn't a, a real common thing for for marathon runners.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those of you who don't know, Julian, he's also one of the co-hosts of the Inside Running podcast, uh, which we've both been guests on in the past, Steph, um, and highly recommend for those of you into your running yeah. to, to follow them as well. Um, you know, great podcast with, you know, fantastic guests in there at really the guys who are at the the peak of running in Australia and involved in in really cool projects, Uh, whether it's, you know, World Champs, Olympics, um, you know, people who are involved with Kipchogis two-hour marathon attempts and and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, great to, to chat to Jules next week. Can't wait. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it for today on the Long Munch. Hopefully, you've enjoyed our podcast. As we said, you know, feel free to hit us up on social media if you've got a particular question that you want answered. Let us know, and we'll we'll add it to our list to to, to bite off in in one of these episodes. But that's all for us today, Steph. So I think it's time for us to sign off, and we'll see everyone next week.
1: Yeah. See ya.